Okay, uh, let's come together right now over me. All right. Some, some people were paying attention, some people weren't. Uh, I, I'm a bit off my game. This is my third ministry engagement of the day, so you'll have to help me through it. Uh, it's been a great day, though, and I hope that you found your, your time and your company is worthwhile. I know that I'm sure that you did. How is it going uh, outside of Frontline? Are you guys getting together? Mostly? I would encourage you, if you, if you aren't, you still have one week to do it, um, so <laughs> try to get together. But that's a big part of what we're doing, right? We're, we're not just, this is not just about gaining information. So there is that, like we want to communicate information. We want to add to our knowledge, um, both systematic theology, phase one, biblical theology, phase two. Uh, next phase, phase three, we're going to look at practical theology. So it's time to start talking with your company about whether or not you're in or you're out. There's an off-ramp and an on-ramp. It's a two-month commitment, so shorter, and we're going to be talking about what is church membership, what is church discipline, uh, what is evangelism and how do we do it, and what is discipleship. Not just, and this is more of the how-to, right? So we've been doing discipleship, but in phase three, we're going to go through how do you make disciples? So it's, it's pretty critical. Uh, as far as going forward, if we're going to be making disciples, we know how to do it, uh, not just do it. So that falls into the same realm as like hermeneutics, right? How do you study the Bible? Not just what does the Bible say, but how do you study it? And that's what we did with the women this fall. We really ought to do that probably in the next round of Frontline uh, for the men. How do you study the Bible? Jay's going to be leading the women through homiletics. That's another practical theology. How do you take interpretation of the Bible and turn it into a presentation, a sermon, or some kind of presentation talk? Um, and then there's discipleship, right? We all know we need to do it, but how do you do it? So I would really encourage you uh, to think about coming. I think you'll have three or four weeks off before we get into phase three. Uh, and the workload is much less. It's about two chapters of a, of a pretty small book a week. So probably we're looking at, we're getting back closer to about a half an hour of work a, a week. And then it's more discussion-based. It'll be more collaborative after I lay down, or not just me, actually, we're gonna, anyway, whoever's leading, lay down sort of the essence of what we need to know and then discuss it amongst one another. So please think about doing that. Uh, as far as phase two goes, we, are, we have just one week left. So next week we're looking at John. So we've looked at four personalities, four writers in the New Testament. You have Luke, who wrote about a third of the New Testament. You have Paul, who wrote about a quarter of the New Testament. And Peter, he, he only wrote two books, but he was crucial in the whole launching of the church, obviously. And then John... Next week, and I, w I, d I won't say too much about this now, but John is the, the capstone of the Bible. So he wrote the Gospel of John, first, second, third letters of John, and Revelation. So five books. And I believe the Gospel of John, which was his first writing, is later than every other book of the New Testament. So you get, John gets the last word, not just in Revelation, but all of John's writings are last. And that's significant because you see in John's writing the maturation. If you think Romans is, is a, ma a mature presentation of the gospel, and it is, and it's late, by the way, um, you get to John and, and he's doing theology that, I don't know if I could say not even Paul did. I think, I think so. It's close, but it, it's, just, it's just elevated to this sublime level. Um, so... That, when you're reading John, have that in mind. That, that's God's last word, and he chose John. And that's why God kept John alive, right? John's the only apostle that wasn't martyred. Uh, he kept him alive through all the persecution to have the last word as we closed out the first century. So today, though, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Colossians, First and Second Peter. Now, we've got about 50 minutes to do this. This is going to be big picture, and hopefully we don't need to spend much time in Romans. Um, 
So this is the impossible task uh, to go at this pace through these books. But the point is just to give, give enough information where uh, you'll be comfortable to revisit these books and say, oh, okay, yeah, uh, let me zone in on this or that, or I, I didn't really notice that, or I did notice that, or, and I'm not going to be able to be exhaustive. You're going to have noticed some things that I am not going to bring up, and that's great. So uh, last thing before I pray and then get into Romans, um, I want to hear from you, actually. How, are, are you going to make it one more week? We're, we're close. We're doing all right. I am just so impressed and very thankful for all of you and the commitment that you've put into this. I, I just never in my wildest dreams thought that we would be going through week 13 of biblical theology and have 20 guys here. I just never thought that that would happen. So I'm sorry for underestimating you. Uh, you've proven me wrong in the best possible way, and uh, I believe that this is going to pay off for years and years to come. So thank you for putting the work in. I appreciate it. Yeah. Unprepared, yeah. That's why I came unprepared, yeah. <laughs> All right, let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord, I thank you for these men, and I thank you for the commitment that they've given to reading your word and gathering in their companies and sharing their lives with one another and praying for one another. I thank you for the opportunity that I've had to revisit uh, these scriptures and think about how to prepare them and, and present them in a coherent way. God, I pray that you would use what we prepare, that as we draw close to your word, you would draw close to us and you would uh, equip us and empower us to go out and to make disciples. I pray that you would uh, bless this church as we seek to push the front line further into enemy territory. And I do pray that you would add to our number those who are being saved. Help me as I uh, seek to go through these books. I pray that you give me clarity of thought and uh, concise speech that I would uh, bring glory to your name, clarity to the word, and be a blessing to these men. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Paul and Peter. All right. Uh, I almost feel we don't need to do much here. Am I accurate? <laughs> Romans. And which is very exciting also because this is a big book, right? This is an important book. Um, I, I, from, I don't want to center anyone out, but are you, you're getting this, right? You're, you're, this, this is a part of, you're breathing the book of Romans, you're understanding it, you're, you're feeling confident that you could break it down as I have it here, right? You have orthodoxy, chapters 1 through 11, orthopraxy, 12 through 16. You could break that down in a different way, right? Doctrines of salvation, 1 to 8. Doctrines of election, 9 to 11. And then sp spiritual worship, 12 to 16. Um... So rather than me talking about this, let's just, I'm going to go through, I'm going to announce the, the category and then I'll give you a chance to say something. Maybe something that I have failed to say in the last year of preaching uh, that's been on your mind or some, anything. Uh, maybe we'll have at least one, maximum three guys speak for each section. So chapters one through three are really about wrath and propitiation. So does anyone have any thoughts on that? Like something that, or, or, or want to summarize it about God's wrath and, and propitiation. Okay. Good. Amen. That's a really good summary. Yep. 
So I th everyone could hear Wayne? I won't repeat it then. That that's excellent. What is wrath? Absolutely. It's good. Excellent. What is wrath? That's key, uh, and I think for evangelism, that's helpful. When you talk about a wrathful God, we're not talking about a God that takes pleasure in inflicting pain on people. Wrath is the removal of God's goodness, not the, he can't, in, he can't induce anything that's evil or tormenting, like it's just against his, his nature. So in Romans 1, you see God hands us over, that's his wrath, handing us over, and ultimately in hell, we're handed over to ourselves fully. No more restraints by God's common grace. So, that, that's important. Alright, uh, chapters 4 and 5 are about justification. Uh, somebody define it, and then if you want to say something about it, then go ahead. What is justification? Exactly. And that's good language. We, it's not just about a lack of guilt. It's the uh, actual provision of righteousness or right standing in a legal sense. Good. So it's all positional. In justification, there's no change to your nature. That's crucial. Anyone want to say anything about justification? At the end of chapter 5, we're told that God gave the law through Moses to compound our sin, right? One sin, Adam broke the law in the garden, was enough to bring death to all men. So God added 613 laws to make us even guiltier so that his grace may be showcased at a deeper level. It wasn't enough for God. And I think uh, the, the image I used was if you had a glass vase and there was a crack in it and somebody could fix that, that's impressive. Glass isn't easy to fix that way. But if you take the glass or vase and you smash it into countless number of pieces and then you put it back together, that's even more impressive. And so that's what the law does. Law, if Adam cracked the vase, which is humanity, uh, the, the Mosaic law came in to smash the vase to show just how sinful we are. And then God, by his grace, through justification, puts it back together as if it's perfect. So why not go on sinning? If, if God asked for greater sin or brought greater sin through the law so that he could showcase a deeper measure of his grace, why not just go out there and sin? This will transition us into sanctification, chapter six and seven. Why not just keep on sinning? That's it. Can you prove that from chapters four and five? No. That's key. In, cha in chapters four and five, it's a, as Matt said, it's about our right standing before God. So right standing, go and sin more. Your nature hasn't been changed. Your position has been changed. Therefore, the doctrine of justification gives you no good rationale, in my opinion, for why you should not sin. But sanctification does. What's the doctrine of sanctification? We get it in chapters 6 and 7. Right. 
You're close. Yes, Duncan. Good. And, and the start of that process is sanctification starts with your death. You die on the cross with Christ. And then you are raised to new life. Uh, there's different ways to talk about this. It's the circumcision of the heart, Moses would say. It's the, the purification of the heart, David would say. It's the taking out the heart of stone and putting a heart of flesh in, Ezekiel would say. It's writing the law on your heart, Jeremiah would say. It's being made obedient from the heart, Paul would say. Okay? So these are all different ways of saying the same thing, that you have to die and being born again, that's what John would say. Paul never talks about being born again, but John does. Uh, maybe because John hung out with Jesus, and Jesus used born again language. Peter talks about being born again, but Paul doesn't. He talks about dying with Christ and being resurrected uh, in newness of life. So sanctification is death and rebirth of your nature. It's different than justification. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, justification is an imputed righteousness, which is status only, position only. Um, but sanctification, it, it begins definitively with a death and rebirth. Your nature is not, it's not imputed to you. It's recreated. You're a new creature. Uh, we got to grab that or else nothing will make sense. Glorification is the end of sanctification. So what's glorification? What is our hope? I'm hoping that you guys are just shy for some reason and I haven't failed over the last year. You're, you're just shy to speak out? Because <laughs> I've gone over this pretty much every week for 52 weeks. What's Glorification. Yeah, we, it, it's bodily resurrection. So what you talked about, your flesh is at war with your heart. Glorification is the resurrection of your body. And your sinless soul is put in a sinless body and you live forever supernaturally in glory. And God recreates the cosmos and we live with him in it. Okay, moving on, we, we gotta go faster. Election, I'll just do this because you guys are not talkative. Um, election actually these chapters are more about Israel than they are about individuals it's all about God has, is not done with, with Israel God elected Israel not everyone in Israel but he elected a remnant within Israel and he's going to fulfill his national covenant to Israel in the end now you can extrapolate application for us Gentiles, right? That God focused in on Gentiles and that individually there are Gentiles that are added to the remnant of the nation of Israel. We are elected. We are chosen by God. We don't choose God. He chooses us. And then you have chapters 12 through 16 which is spiritual worship. In light of all this doctrine, if this is true, then live this way. Any closing comments on Romans? Yeah, consecration is a good word. You consecrate yourself to the Lord, that's good. Well, uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, But the we partner with the Holy Spirit in our progressive sanctification. So definitive sanctification. Remember, there's two kinds of sanctification. Sanctification begins definitively as an act of God. He gives us new birth. He nails us to the cross with Christ, and then he gives us new birth. But that, so that's definitive. It starts with God, but then by his grace, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And it's all fueled in his power, his strength. Um, we, but we 
live from the inside out in accordance with the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us in our union with Christ. So there's a partnership. Yes? Yeah, I think it, that's a really good way to put a, think of it. It really does slide nicely between seven and eight thematically. Yeah. That's a good point. I never thought of that. Yeah, exactly. I, th- that, I never thought of that, but that's very true. Yeah, I think noodling over words. Um, Most theologians would say there's the definitive sanctification, which you're talking about, and then there's progressive sanctification. If you want to call it transformation, that's fine. Yeah, but the whole point is, and this this is a good point, Justin, there are two aspects to sanctification. We normally forget the first part, the definitive part, the whole new birth that is a completed work. So, And the way to think about it, if you get inside John's head for next week, is when a sperm meets an egg in the fallopian tube, you have a full-blown human being. But that human being is not going to be going to university in the womb, right? There's, there's er, There's a human being there that needs to grow up. So when we are definitively sanctified, we are new creatures, but we're new creatures in the same way that a multi-cell human being in the womb is. Like we're just young and we, can't, we, are like we start with umbilical cords, then we're onto milk before we're onto solid food and we're, we're just laying still before we can crawl, before we can walk, before we can run. So there's this growing up, which we actually understand in just our own experience and yet there's a spiritual correlation to, to the the process of human beings. So, got to move on. First uh, Corinthians. First Corinthians is perhaps the easiest book in the New Testament to understand the structure. And by contrast, Second Corinthians is one of the hardest. Um, Paul had a very complicated relationship with the Corinthians. Um, he planted the church in his first visit during his second missionary journey. So if you will go back to Acts Uh, He met Prisca and Aquila. They planted the church. He was there for about a year and a half, uh, was convinced that they were saved, thought that they had enough knowledge to be able to progress without him, and he left, and everything fell apart. And so he wrote them a letter, which is called in 1 Corinthians the previous letter, which we don't have. So it was obviously not written by God through Paul. This was Paul in the flesh, responding to a church that is off the rails. And God says, nice try. Maybe there's some things that were constructive about it, but it's not getting in the Bible. Um, And so then Paul got some feedback from the Corinthian church. He said, okay, let me try again. And so there's two sources. There was Chloe and her household sent emissaries, and then also with a written letter from the church, help us with these issues. And so you get 1 Corinthians written, after Paul had established a church, sent one letter already. After 1 Corinthians, he, sends, he gets more feedback about how things didn't get much better. In fact, they're much worse. And so he writes the severe letter or the painful letter, which we read about in 2 Corinthians 7. Um, and in response to that letter, which also you'll notice is not in the Bible, which means that Paul, as much as it was probably constructive and pastoral and helpful and, and all of that, God says it's not divinely inspired. So it didn't make it into the Bible. Uh, and Paul actually says, you know, I regretted that letter. So we don't know what was in the letter, but I regretted that letter, but I don't regret it. Because it brought about repentance and I wish I didn't have to be so severe. And So he had a very love-hate 
paternalistic uh, relationship with uh, adolescent Christians who just didn't want to submit to his authority. Uh, and then we have a second visit, which he refers to in 2 Corinthians as the painful visit. So after the severe letter, he had the painful visit where he sort of tried to mop things up uh, from this uninspired letter. And after that, he writes 2 Corinthians. And at the end of 2 Corinthians, we're going to find out that he prepares them for a third visit. He does get there a third time. So Paul is investing a ton in the Corinthian church. And uh, we don't have anything close to the disaster of the Corinthian church. But in my pastoral experience, when things seem to be going off the rails in, in the church, I just thank God for the Corinthians. Because it just puts things in perspective, right? Like, uh, this is Paul, and, and this is in the uh, apostolic age, and things were not running very smoothly. So the church has kind of been a mess from the beginning, which is encouraging. And yet, this is God's church, and, and Christ is going to change the world through the church, even churches like the Corinthian church. So we can find some comfort in that. There's no perfect church, uh, even though South Shore is pretty close. Um, so Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in 53 or 54, makes it a fairly early letter, right? He still has a, a, a good decade and then some before he's going to be martyred in Rome. Uh, he wrote it from Ephesus during his third missionary journey, so it's near the end of the book of Acts. And this is when he spent a couple of years in Ephesus, and Corinth and Ephesus are not far apart. And so he was sending letters back and forth from Ephesus to the Corinthians. Now, it breaks down, as I said, super easy. You have two main parts. The first part, he's responding to things he's heard. I hear this is happening. And then in the second part, so once you get to chapter 7, right through to the end of chapter 16, he is literally going through a list of questions that the Corinthians sent him in Ephesus. So regarding your question on this, regarding your question on that, and then he answers. So it makes it uh, an uber-practical book for us. Like it, it, this is a, the Q&A of the Bible. Things that local churches might want to ask God, it's in 1 Corinthians, and he's also dealing with messed up believers, which is helpful. So how do you deal with a church that is, you know, kind of there, but not all there, and you can find all kinds of issues. So in that sense, it's not like Romans, as Peter said earlier, it's not like Romans that has a theological arc. It doesn't have a theological plot. It's a laundry list of issues that need to be dealt with. So let's go through them fairly quickly. In chapters 1 through 4, you really get uh, Paul addressing the divisions in the church. So Paul planted the church, but after he left, things fell apart and Apollo showed up. And Paul was not a very impressive man. He was compared to the Greek god Hermes. Hermes is not an impressive god. He's, he's little, and he's, he's a messenger for the, the bigger gods. Um, so we find out that Paul was kind of ugly, he was bow-legged, he uh, wasn't a very good public speaker, he was almost blind, he was small probably because Hermes was small. Um, there was nothing that impressive on the outside. He was a much better writer than he was an orator. Um, and so Apollos comes along and he's like an excellent public speaker. He was probably impressive looking. We're going to find out in 2 Corinthians that other apostles, so-called apostles, come by. They're false apostles, false teachers. But they're even more impressive than Apollos. So in, in the beginning, there, there were four divisions in the church. There were some Corinthians that says, no, I follow Paul. Paul planted the church. I'm loyal to Paul. And then there were others like, yeah, but I really like Apollos. He's, you know, he kind of scratches me where I itch. And then there were others that say, no, Peter's my man. And we don't really know what Peter's influence was. Was, did Peter go to Corinth? Or were there some of Peter's disciples that went to Corinth? I don't know that. I haven't studied enough. Maybe there is an answer, but I don't know the answer to that. Uh, you don't? Could be, yeah. Yeah, it could be the Gospel of Mark. I, I, this is my canon. That's a good point. Because Mark was really writing down um, Peter's 
reflections on the life of Christ. And then there was others that says, no, I, I am not going to follow any man. I follow Christ. And we still have those people in the church today, right? No man, just Christ. But unfortunately, uh, God didn't set up the church that way. We all follow Christ, but there has to be under shepherds. And, and what Paul deals with in these first four chapters is, this is ridiculous, guys. I planted Apollo's waters, but God gives the growth. Now, this is really instructive for any church at any time. The pastor is not necessary. Pastors come and go. You know that. I'm going to go next year. Um, so pastors come and go. God shuffles pastors around. Uh, but the church stays. And as God brings new leadership into uh, positions of authority in the church, it's anti-gospel and counterproductive to prefer one over the other. Now, we all have our preferences, and the pre it's not that you can't say, well, I really kind of gravitated to Jason more than Adam, or Adam more than the next guy, but the point is, God in his sovereignty has appointed Jason for one chapter, Adam for another chapter, and the next guy for the next chapter. And in, in addition to Jason, Adam, and the next guy, you have the whole council of elders, and you have one another. So, as we're making this transition over the next year or so, let's not lose anybody because of it. And, and that's really going to fall to you. Frontline means something, right? You're the front line of the church. As a group of 25 men, you need to work together to make sure we don't lose anybody and take them to these first chapters in 1 Corinthians. Who's Adam? He's, he's nothing. Who's Jason? He's nothing. Who's the new guy? He's nothing. But what is God doing now in the church through the, the pastor that he has brought to us? That's the only thing that, that matters. Moving on in verse, chapters 5 and 6, we get into sex and lawsuits. Uh, they were a sexual mess. Uh, not only were they sleeping with prostitutes, they were sleeping, like one guy was sleeping with his mother-in-law, or his stepmother, I mean, which, or, or his, his, actually it's not even that clear, it's his father's wife, so we're hoping it's his stepmother. Yeah, and they're like, we're, that's fine. Part of it is because of the sex cult that was in Corinth, that it's a, it's a spiritual act, and and we know that, that sexuality is, is very spiritual, right? It's a, it's a reenactment of the gospel. And so they were trying to practice Christianity the way pagans practice their worship. And they might have even been pointing out, this is like the new birth. They may have been attaching their sexual perversion to gospel truths which would exp express the boasting what, is it, what, do you, what does it mean that they're boasting? Well, they're trying to connect their sexual perversion to some kind of Christian worship. And Paul says, this is not the way it's done in the church. Did you have something to say? No? Okay. Um, and then lawsuits in chapter 6, they were taking each other to court. So these are all things that Paul's just heard about. And, and Paul says, it's better to be wrong than to take a Christian to court. Keep that in mind. That pops up every few years in the church. You have an option to take a brother or sister in the church to court over something. Better to, to just be, suffer than to take your Christian brother or sister before a non-Christian judge. And he says, Aren't there any, isn't there anyone wise enough in the church to help you to resolve this? Chapter 7, he talks about marriage. And basically, he's dealing with, um, is it right or wrong to get married? He says, well, it's not right or wrong. If you're single and you want to stay single, stay single. If you have a, a need for sex, get married, because you can't have sex outside of marriage. Um, if you're married and one of you comes to faith and the other doesn't, don't divorce. But if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, you're free to get remarried. Um, and so on. So he, he's dealing with, with just very practical questions about marriage. Uh, this chapter, just to, to point it out, is revolutionary in the Bible because it gives divine sanction to singleness. The Bible's focused like almost entirely on marriage 
and children. And here it says it's a valid Christian option to be single, whether you're a man or a woman. It's interesting. Chapters 8 through 10, we get a uh, discussion about food sacrificed to idols and uh, all kinds of matters of uh, food laws and worship. In chapters 11 through 14, these are all instruction about when the church is gathered. So you get a, a lot of very informative discussion about gender roles. It, you'll notice in these chapters that on the one hand, the, the man is the head of his wife just as Christ is the head of all people and God is the head of Christ. So that's a theological principle that we need to flesh out in our corporate worship. That we want to reflect the headship of the Father over Christ and the headship of Christ over humanity in male headship over women in the church. That is expressed in two ways, through male-only eldership and through the uh, headship of husbands in their marriage. There's no wiggle room there. So all those liberal theologians that talk about there's no distinction just clearly haven't wrestled with that enough, in my opinion. Um, but we don't want to overcorrect. Uh, Paul talks about when a woman prays publicly in the corporate gathering of the saints or prophesies. And prophecy, I understand it to be uh, a deliverance or an utterance of God's word. So before the New Testament was written, the Spirit spontaneously spoke through men and women. But women were not permitted, if you go, that's in chapter 11. If you get to chapter 14, women were not permitted to interpret the prophecy. Meaning, so if somebody stands up and says, I have a word from the Lord, a woman is permitted to speak that, provided she has a head covering, which was the Corinthian way of showing that she's submissive to her husband. I understand that to mean that she has whispered this to her husband. I think I have a, a word from the Lord. Shares it with her husband. And her husband says, you should share that. She covers her head as a way of publicly saying, my husband has sanctioned me to share this. He has vetted this. But then there's a second round of vetting after she utters it, and that is left only to the men. That's where it says women must remain silent in the churches. It doesn't mean that they can't speak at a microphone. It means that they're not allowed to weigh the utterance of God's word, which means they're not to preach. Okay? So male-only headship, but there are opportunities for women to participate vocally in the gathering of the saints, and it's right there in the letter. Um, we also get um, a whole section on the Lord's Supper, this, which is often quoted. Uh, and this is again goes back to their pagan expression of Christianity, where you would go to the temple and get drunk and have an orgy to worship your pagan gods. They maybe weren't going that far, but maybe almost. They were definitely getting drunk and everyone was eating their own and so there was a division in the church. So while they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, the rich were getting drunk, if you can believe it, and the poor were not even allowed into that room in some cases and they were going home hungry without having even a drop of wine. And that's the context of uh, weigh yourself before you participate in the Lord's table it's not about uh, have you sinned of course everyone's sinned the lord's table is the table of grace it's about if you're not united as a local church don't partake in communion because it's a farce so if you're causing trouble which is bringing disunity to the church do not take communion and in my mind that's the only reason not to take communion if you're in conflict with someone, you can still take communion if you're going through the biblical steps to resolve it. Otherwise, I don't know if I could ever take communion. Uh, there's always conflict in the church. But it's, it, that doesn't disqualify you from taking communion. It's about being a rebel rouser and a rabble rouser and causing disunity in the church. Then you're cut off. Then we get to chapter 15, my, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, all about resurrection. They, they thought, what is this resurrection? Is it just spiritual? And he's like, no, your bodies are going to come back to life. What, he says, there's a spiritual body that you need to inhabit. What's a spiritual body? It's a physical body. Don't misunderstand that. When he's talking about a spiritual body, he's not talking about a non-corporal body. He's talking about a super-physical body that has more substance in it than the bodies we have now. 
And he says, if Christ has died and rose again, you're united to him, so though you die, you will rise. And if, if, if you won't rise, then Christ didn't rise. And if Christ didn't rise, then you're still lost in your sins, and we of all people are most to be pitied. But the great hope of that chapter is there is bodily resurrection from the dead. Praise be to God. And then chapter 16, final comments. So that's 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, I'm going to have to pick up the pace a little bit. Um, one of the more complicated books in the Bible. Uh, but really, if I had to summarize this book, it's, with one word, it would be cruciform. Paul is trying to show that the Christian life conforms to the cross. And if your life is not conforming to the cross at whatever degree, now it does, doesn't mean we all have to you know, be um, in jail or all of us need to be martyred. But if, if your life is, shows no signs of cruciformity, then you're probably not a Christian. And his cruciformity, that is, the, the, his suffering in imitation or in, in keeping with Christ's suffering was his stamp of authenticity. If you are being used by God, the devil and his demonic world will hate it and he will hate you and you will be the target of suffering, of persecution, of pain. And the world will hate you so if you're not hated by the world and if you're not suffering and if circumstances never go awry for you, you, you might be saved, but you're, you're not walking very close with the Lord. Now this flies in the face of everything we desire as North Americans, which makes it a hard book. It's divided into three parts. Uh, chapters 1 through 6, Paul defends himself and his ministry. As I said, these super apostles came in, and not only were they impressive orders, they were impressive looking, and they were wealthy. They were the, your classic prosperity gospel teachers. And people says, why would I want to hitch my wagon to Paul's train when, like, look where it's getting him. Shipwrecks, imprisonment, beatings, like, poverty, stoning. People seem to hate him. So why would, I, why would I go there when these super apostles are telling me I can be like them? I, I can be rich. I can be powerful. I can be healthy. I can be good looking. Well, for some of us, that's, no, there's no miracle big enough for that. But So Paul begins by defending his ministry. And in chapter 1, 1 through 2, 13, he defends himself. He's like, why are you abandoning me? You want to know if I'm a legitimate uh, apostle you are my credentials I planted you. you you the fact that you're Christians is proof positive that Jesus sent me because because you're only Christians you only exist as a church because I came to you basically and then in chapters 213 to 318 he defends his ministry and he says you think that you don't want to follow me because of all my suffering and my persecutions and my all the difficult things that are happening to me well, well that, that's what makes me legit. And then he expands on that through ver chapters 4 through 6, explaining the paradox of Christian ministry. If you're not suffering, you, you should question whether or not you're truly walking with the Lord. Because those who are walking with Christ will have a cruciform life. And it's a great paradox. He says, look, we carry this around in jars of clay we have we have the hope of the world in us but we ourselves are jars of clay and why would God entrust such a glorious truth to such broken people who are suffering why would God wrap his gospel in the suffering of the saints yeah why not give it to angels to come in triumph with trumpets from heaven why not give it to the Joel Osteens of the world the super apostles Why? What does he say? 
Yeah, it's, it's the inversion. It's the paradoxical nature of the gospel. It's to show that our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in something outside and beyond and greater than us. Uh, kill me and, and God will raise me from the dead. It's not about proving how strong I am as a man. It's proving how great the gospel is. And sometimes we prove the greatness of the gospel by highlighting our own weaknesses. If God can do this for me, then he can do it for anyone. Second section, chapter 7 through 9, Paul exhorts the Corinthians from Macedonia. In chapter 7, he talks about how Titus has come and given him a report, and things seem to be turning around for the Corinthians, and he's so happy about that. Uh, and he says, you know, I kind of regret my severe letter, but I don't really regret it because it did bring about some repentance. Um, and then he says, remember, uh, when I was with you, I, I was doing a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. When I come back, I want to I gather something from you. So he's reminding them of, uh, to be cheerful givers, to, to give generously to the, the church at large. Now, every commentator will say that this seems like the natural end of the letter. It starts by him saying, defending himself, defending his ministry, talking about the paradox of the, of the cruciform life, and then saying, you know, I, I just got word from Titus that things seem to be improving. I'm so glad about that. Now, I'm going to come to you and remember to be generous when I come. And, and so it seems like there's this neg from negative to positive as you know, he's writing this over the matter of days or weeks, and he's getting more information, especially between chapters uh, 6 and 7. But then you get to the end of chapter 9, and now he goes back and he blasts them even harder than he did at the beginning about the super apostles. And it sounds like he got yet another report that actually things aren't as good as Titus had hoped. And so he ends the letter by saying, look, I don't want to brag about myself, but since these super apostles are boasting about themselves, let me boast about myself a little bit. I don't want to do this, but you're compelling me. I know a guy. And, and he was caught up into the third heaven, meaning like heaven, not, not this atmosphere, not outer space, but actually the throne room of God. Whether he was in the body or not in the body, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, but he saw things that he's not even permitted to tell you about. And why is Paul, Paul's writing about himself? Why is he writing in the third person? Because he feels that he can't admit to such a great experience because that would be boasting. And so he puts it in the third person. And that's where you get the thorn in the flesh. He says, look, I'm suffering to constantly remind, God is constantly reminding me through my suffering that the great things that I have seen are not because it's not because of me. It was all by God's grace. So what did he see there? Well, everything that he's written about, like what I understand when he says this is a word from the Lord in his letters, it's because God took him to heaven and Jesus sat down with him and taught him. Talking about sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, might as well sit at the, sit at the feet of Jesus. Jesus gave Paul unfettered access to him in heaven in resurrected glory. And he never wrote about it except for here. And then he goes on, he says, I'm coming to you, so get your act in order because I don't want to have to come with a stick. Moving on to Colossians. Oh, we're almost out of time. Uh, Colossians, very quickly. Th this is the greatest Christology in some ways of Paul's writings. You, you get in chapter 1, the supremacy of, of Christ where you get without any shadow of a doubt that Paul believes that God, Jesus is God. He is uh, the creator. All things were made by him and through him and for him. Uh, he is the head of the church, the, so the supremacy of Christ. And then he gets into talking about his own ministry. You have to keep going fast. And then talking about false teachers. There's something called the Colossian heresy which nobody knows exactly what it is. Because it's kind of vague. There's the, he talks about Jewish, following Jewish traditions, and he talks about following pagan traditions. So we're not exactly sure what this heresy was, but it was some kinds of, of a works-based salvation where you do something. And he says, no, reflect on the greatness of Jesus Christ who has defeated the powers and principalities. He, he triumphed over Satan, putting him to open shame on the cross. He has reconciled you by his blood. 
So much like Romans, in chapters 1 and 2, you get the doctrine, and then chapters 3 and 4, you get the therefore live this way. And so in chapter 3, 1 to 17, you get the put off the old self and put on the new self. Now this is often misunderstood. We think every day you have to get up and before you put your clothes on and brush your teeth, you know, we all put our pants on one leg at a time, but before that we have to put off the old self and put on the new self. That's wrong. That's a, that's a bad theology. The, the putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self is a once for all. You don't keep doing that. You have put off the old self when you were crucified with Christ, and you have put on the new self when you were raised with Christ. When you were born again. So this is that definitive sanctification. So what he's not saying is continually put off and continually put on. He's like, you have put off and you have put on, therefore live that way. That's crucial because as much as it seems very mentally constructive to okay, put off the old self, put on the new self, it is, trust me, a self-defeating way to live your life. It keeps you in constant fear, constant shame, constant guilt. If you sin, it's because you haven't put off the old self today. You haven't put on the new self today. And it keeps you in this place of paralysis, shame, uh, I'm a wretched sinner, woe is me, kind of, I'll never get it. So what he's saying in chapter 3 is, remember your definitive sanctification. Remember your union with Christ and live it out. And then he gets into the Christian household where he basically says, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands, slaves submit to your masters, masters treat your slaves well, and so on. And then further instructions and final greetings. Okay, I can't go through this, so big idea. First Peter is a brilliant book. It was, uh, I think, that one of the first books that was preached ex- like, uh, expositionally at South Shore. Jason preached through it. Um, what I want to highlight for our pur- purposes today is this middle section. So big picture it can divide into three parts. Part number one, rejoice in the consummation of old covenant promises. So the old covenant has been consummated in the new covenant. And the amazing thing about this is Paul applies imagery that is reserved for Israel in the Old Testament to Gentile Christians, to the church. This doesn't mean that the church replaces Israel, but we're grafted in. So talking about the typology, you have Passover and wilderness and temple in, in 1 Peter. right? You're the Exodus generation. You're wandering in the wilderness, but you, ha- you are a living temple. Then the middle section is submit to su- in suffering as a witness to Christ. And this is really crucial for us in, in, our, in our day that we live now because we have more in common with the first century than we've had since Constantine. We need to stop trying to reinforce Constantinian Christology, or uh, sorry, Christianity. That is, that what is the word that I'm looking for? The, the Christian kingdom. Yeah, Christendom. Christendom in Canada is over. Okay? Constantine is dead in Canada. If you don't know what I mean, Constantine was the first Christian emperor and it became the state religion and Christianity ruled the West from Constantine until the generation before now. But Constantine is dead. And we have more in common with the first century than we've had in 1700 years. So this becomes super important to us in ways that it hasn't been as important in the West for 1,700 years. Number one, submit to your governing authorities. Do you think it was easy? When Peter wrote this in like 63, 64, Nero is persecuting Christians. Nero's going to kill him. And Peter says, guys, our job is not to take over Rome is to submit to our governing authorities. So even when that causes suffering, submit. Secondly, slaves, submit to your masters. Even when they're not treating you well. Even when they're beating you. Third, 
Wives, submit to your husbands, even if he's not saved. Or if he is saved, he's not acting like a Christian man. And then chapter 3, 8 to 4, 11, in all things, submit to any kind of suffering for being a Christian. But whatever you do, don't suffer because you've done some kind of evil. If you're going to suffer, suffer for doing right. Now, notice the theme here. Suffer under bad government. Suffer under bad masters. Suffer under a bad husband. Suffer under bad circumstances. Peter is not saying submit so long as it's good to submit. Submit when it feels good. Submit when those who God has put over you are doing a good job, when they're making your life flourish. No, this is the exact opposite. Even when those that are over you are making your life uh, difficult, submit. So you might say, even when the elders are not maybe on their game, submit to them. This is a lost quality in Christian living that we are called to submission and we hate it. And just look at social media. Look at the church hates to submit to the governing authorities. Let's just start there. We hate it. Especially now that the governing authorities don't agree with us. And then in uh, chapter 412 to the end of the book in 514, if you're going to suffer, the only way you're going to get through it is if you remember the end of the story. You're going to be exalted. So you don't need to win now. You're going to win later. Second Peter, this this is breaks down. This is Peter's last letter. He knows he, like he's on death row at this point. Uh, these are his last words. He really is dealing with three falsehoods that he wants to put straight. Number one, people were saying that the gospel is a myth, that these apostles just made it up. He says, no. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw the majestic glory, meaning the same glory that filled the Holy of Holies. I heard the voice from heaven, meaning the transfiguration. I'm not making this up. I'm an eyewitness that Jesus died and rose again. I, was, I, I saw him transfigured. Second falsehood, False teachers are not going to be condemned. So in verses 1 to 3, uh, Peter was losing people to false teachers. And he reminds the church, don't follow false teachers even though it looks like a productive avenue in the short term. And he reminds the, his readers that God has judged severely in the past. And he will judge severely in the future. So have some perspective. Um, and then the third falsehood, well, Jesus isn't going to return to judge. He's been gone for almost four decades. <laughs> it's been a little bit longer than that now. Um, so why should we believe you that Jesus is going to come back and judge and make everything right? I think I'll take my short-term gain, avoid short-term pain, and Peter says, that is just, just total folly. Remember Noah? Everyone thought he was crazy. But eventually the rains came and everyone but eight people died. And Peter says that's what it's going to be like. God is not slow in returning, but he's, he's patient with us. But one day he will send Christ. Jesus will return. There will be a reckoning just as there was in the days of Noah. Therefore, do not opt for short-term comforts. You need to secure your life in the long-term gain. Um, and so the flood then becomes this picture of the final judgment. And Peter says it's not going to be water though that destroys the world. It's going to be fire that dissolves the universe. Yes. Yeah, they don't. Who knows when it's going to happen? Yeah, and people were still buying and selling, getting married, living life as normal, 
And then the rains came. And that's what it's going to be. All of a sudden, Christ will return and that's the end. The door will shut like a thief in the night. So be ready. And that's Peter. So I'm out of time. Let me pray. Um, <laughs> let me pray. God, thank you for this time that we've had tonight. I pray that although we had to go really quick, especially over the last three letters, I pray that you would um, bless our time together, bless us as we seek to uh, become cruciform people, seeking the long-term investment, the long-term exaltation, trusting that Christ will return, that you will uh, repay according to the works done in our bodies. We know that our entrance is secured only by Christ, but uh, you will make all things right. So Lord, help us to have a long view of our life and not give in to the temptation of short-term comfort and gain. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.